Happy New Year. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. It's 2020, and we're excited about what the new year will bring. For our guest today, it brings a new baby and a continued focus on helping to make Boston a better place. Andrea Campbell has just begun serving her third term as Boston City Councilor, representing District 4. We had a chance to sit down and talk with her at the end of 2019, days before she delivered her new son, Aiden, into the world. We talked about her experiences in the Boston Public Schools, her new education plan, and her goals for her next term. Born and raised in Boston and educated in Boston's public schools, including Boston Latin School, Andrea Campbell went on to graduate from Princeton University and UCLA Law School. She began her career at a nonprofit in Roxbury, providing free legal services to students and their parents on education matters, including school discipline and special education needs. She has worked as legal counsel in both the public and private sectors, and before embarking on her run for city council, served as deputy legal counsel for Governor Deval Patrick. She served as the elected president of city council in her last term and continues to serve as counselor to District 4, representing Dorchester, Mattapan, Jamaica Plain, and Roslindale. Andrea, welcome. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, so first of all, congratulations on your win. Yes, we just had an election, and um, it's very exciting to uh, be coming back and to be serving a third term starting in January. Representing District 4. District 4, largely Dorchester, Mattapan, a little bit of Jamaica Plain and Rossendale. Yeah, so so both within District 4 and um, in comprehensively in the city, what are some of the key things that you want to focus on during this term? So, I mean, I think we're continuing the work, you know, we've been focusing on for years now. Obviously, education, all issues related to expanding access to quality education in the city of Boston, particularly, obviously, BPS. Um, we focus a lot on public safety issues, um, not just by virtue of the fact that we have the shootings and the stabbings that happen in our district, yeah. um, but we also, you know, expand that to include issues around domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse, some of mm -hmm. those topics, mm -hmm. um, as well as speeding cars and traffic, mm -hmm. which is a big concern. So a wide variety of public safety issues. Um, criminal justice reform, as you know, is a passion of mine. Right. So ensuring that those folks who are getting out of our prisons and houses of correction have adequate resources for a second opportunity or a third or a fourth yeah. because many live in our district. Most or majority actually come back to the city of Boston. Right. Um, and then around just general opportunity and equity. You know, there are right. a lot of neighborhoods, particularly Dorchester and Mattapan, that where residents just feel left out of the prosperity that we see in other parts of the city of Boston. So how do we ensure that people have good jobs, um, good access to capital if they want to expand their existing small business, if they want to open a new one. Um, but opportunity generally should be available to everyone. Yeah. And so that's a big piece of the work we do, and we'll continue all of those things um, in the new term. So why do you like being city councilor? I, I love it. It's a you lot know, of stuff. It's a lot of stuff, but even on the tough days, um, and I often say when there's a constituent yelling at you, at a grocery store or somewhere else. Um, you know, my team and I come to this work with a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. 
passion. Um, you know, I grew up in the city of Boston. Um, Where'd to, you grow up? I grew up in Roxbury in the South End. Right. And I live in Mattapan now. But to be able to give back to a community and residents that gave me so much to ensure I was successful is, is significantly meaningful. And then for me, it's grounded in my God-given purpose. Every single day, I feel like this is what I'm meant to be doing with my life. At this time, yeah. um, being a public servant, um, I left behind you know, money, private sector, all of that, and I don't regret it at all yeah. um, because this is where I, I'm meant to, um, I think, lend all of my skills and then to grow as a human being. I often say, where do you get to go into a, a position where you can not only do the work to have an impact, but also grow yeah. um, in, your, in your humanity? Right. And so how lucky am I? Yeah, so when did when did you when did you get the itch or decide to come back to Boston and, and to be politically involved? Could you tell us a little bit about the route you took? You went to Boston Latin School and then you were off to Princeton and then law school. That's right. So you were all over the country, really. You were <laughs> law school at UCLA. Country. I know. I've I've lived in different places and um, you know, even I'm, I'm born and raised here and I say that proudly. I'm a BPS kid. I also say that proudly. Yeah. Um, it means something, right, to, right. to many folks who are um, born and raised here. It's sort of like cemented in you. Yeah. Um, I think as, you as guys have like pride. a private club that, yeah, <laughs> a little a jealous of. It's a source of pride. And, yeah. And my father um, was also born and raised in Boston, so he carried that too. Okay. And um, where did he grow up? In did, Roxbury. In Roxbury also. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, left uh, BPS, left Latin school, went to Princeton, and then mm -hmm. I went to UCLA for law school. Um, but then I came back to Roxbury, and I actually started working with students and their parents um, in education cases. Yeah. And um, it was a nonprofit that is still around doing incredible work. Mm -hmm. And it was about not only delivering great legal service and free legal services, I should say, right. um, in school discipline cases, special needs cases. So we saw a lot of families that fell below the poverty line. Right. So most of those families were families of color from Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan, yeah. um, which was significant for me because many of the folks who came in, they expected an attorney that did not look like me. Yeah. Um, and they were often shocked and sort of looking around, waiting for someone else to walk in the room. I'm like, no, it's me. That's so um, interesting. But it meant a lot to them to see an attorney of color, right, who could relate to some of their experiences. Can you explain why families and kids need legal support when it, as it relates to education? It's So the, the amount of cases that we saw, um, tremendous. I mean, we couldn't take every single referral mm -hmm. because... Um, there were three attorneys in the office, staff attorneys at the time. I was one of them. Um, we had a tremendous caseload. I think that's true for every nonprofit that does meaningful work. Is, right. you know, do you have enough human capital to, to meet the need? But in particular, um, why lawyers come to play in education cases is the complexities of the law that govern public education mm -hmm. um, at the local level, the state level, and the federal level, mm -hmm. particularly with our special needs students. Yeah, so explain, like, what's what's like an example of yeah. a case that you just saw over and over again? Um, evaluation cases. Yeah. So parents who came in and said, I think my student needs more. Mm -hmm. Needs more services. Supports. Needs more supports. Right. Um, needs something to be more individualized. And the system and the school is pushing back. And so we would go in and say, if this parent is requesting that their student be evaluated mm -hmm. um, for, so, for those supports, then we need to bring them through this process called the IEP process. Yeah. And if they should be 
on an individualized education plan, mm -hmm. then so be it. Mm -hmm. And in that plan, you have to list their services. And so another a lot, a lot of cases that we also saw was uh, if someone, if a student had an IEP, mm -hmm. is it being enforced? Mm -hmm. All the services listed in there that we all agree that student needs, are they getting those services? And what's the pushback from a school from the school system side of things? Why? Why would the school system not readily serve the student, readily give them access to an IEP, readily make sure that the um, IEP was actually mm. adhered to? What, what, is it money or is it something else? That's usually what you hear. Money, yeah. lack of resources. Um, it was always a point of frustration to, with me. And it usually wasn't folks at the school level. Mm -hmm. You know, I would often have the teachers and the principals, even if they were whispering to me on the side saying, I absolutely think the student deserves everything that is in that IEP. Yeah. I don't think it's unreasonable. It was the bureaucracy, you yeah. know, the system and the central office saying no, because it was expensive right. um, or it could be expensive. Right. But then the question is, um, if we want to deliver excellent education services, every student should probably have an individualized plan because right. every student learns differently. Um, and the best thing about the work is the student was the client. Mm -hmm. so my youngest was six. My oldest was 22. Oh, wow. And what's remarkable about that framing is it puts the student first and at the center, which isn't always the case yeah. in their learning. Right. And you get to ask them questions, of course, when they're um, in, in different types of terminology so they understand. Yeah. If you're talking to a six-year-old, it's very different, right, yeah. than a teenager. Um, but even the six-year-old got it. And yeah. I remember that case was a METCO case where yeah, the student was being pushed out. Um, and I said, you know, let me explain a little bit about the details of this case. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they don't want you there. And she was, oh, they don't want me there. She, she knew that. She absolutely understood yeah. it and felt it. Yeah. Um, and I remember working with her parents who were phenomenal, who had fought really hard for her to get this placement at MECO. Yeah. Um, and that district didn't really want to give the student what they needed. Yeah. So sometimes I was in other districts with MECO cases, school discipline cases, suspension, expulsion. Did a lot of work on the policy side um, around that time with various agencies and, and advocates around changing how we respond to... Uh, disciplinary issues for students and yeah. saying they shouldn't be excluded from school. You have to do things in school. We want to keep our students in school. Um, looking at the disproportionate effect on students of color right. and also girls. Well, this, can you talk a little bit yeah. about that, right? Because I, you know, I'm sitting here and I, you know, if so, if my child, you know, came home and said they don't want me there, or you know, I'm getting a, kind of a notion that she needs additional supports. They, the tiger mom in me is in that school, is with whatever administration is administering the pro program. She's she's you know being seen by professionals, and, and we're sorting this out. And do I just have a different sort of agency than some of the families that you were serving? As you were, because what's the difference, right? Because why why does why does that child that you're just describing why should she receive any? different treatment and, and why didn't the parents feel emboldened or entitled to, to force the issue the yeah. way that I would kind of just you know, without the, thinking. I, I think the best thing about the work, um, it demonstrated to me, which I already knew, mm. um, but it pushes back on stereotypes and assumptions that others may have around poor families mm -hmm. or families of color, mm -hmm. that they don't show up, they're not involved. Right. I mean, we're hearing that now, even at the national level, they just don't really care, right? right. And it's like, um, no. These parents showed up, um, parents who had two or three jobs, who didn't speak English as a first language, 
who might have had fears related to their immigration status, you name it, mm -hmm. they showed up and they advocated because every family wants better for their child. Even parents that were dealing with substance abuse issues, yep. we had them show up. Yeah, and um, they leveraged your knowledge and your absolutely. power. Absolutely, and, and, and it, was, it was very powerful for me too, yeah. you know, to meet a parent that you knew was struggling with some level of substance abuse, maybe around alcohol. Yeah but still showed up because they wanted something better for their child. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what we need to, that's when we need to do our own mirror work, right? Yeah. Look in the mirror and say, what assumptions do we hold about certain populations of people? Right. Um, and the best thing about government now that I'm sitting in this seat is, is inviting folks to be at the table, suspending assumptions about who will show up, right. giving them the space to be a partner in the work. And when you're talking about education in someone's student yeah. and their child, they need to be at the table from the beginning. Um, so that's the approach I take based on that work at the at the nonprofit that I worked at. So what instigated your then step into political office? So I left uh, there and I actually went to the private sector for a little bit, spent yeah. some time there, and then ultimately left the private sector to go back into public service and um, in government, actually ended up getting a, a job with Governor Patrick okay. as one of his attorneys. Mm, and it was it was around the time that my twin brother was really sick mm -hmm. um, and Andre, who was his name, would ultimately pass away. Yeah, But he was in the custody of the Department of Correction. He had been in the custody of the Department of Correction for two years, which oversees our prisons. Right. Had been arrested for something. He literally sat there for two years awaiting trial, so mm. never went to trial, and was swearing up and down like, sis, it wasn't me responsible for these things I was arrested for. Right. And I said, regardless, you're, you deserve due process in a trial. Yeah, of course. But he had scleroderma. And so over the course of those two years, I'm advocating, I'm at prisons, I'm talking to the Department of Correction about either physically visiting with him and seeing him deteriorate, yeah. getting thinner, right. or talking to him on the phone and having real concerns around requests for medical intervention um, and him not getting the medications that his doctor said he needed for that disease. Um, I remember one instance he filled out a form that you have to fill out a grievance form yeah. and someone sending it back and saying, you filled out the wrong form. All oh, the while wow. he's suffering because right. he needed his foot wrapped in a certain way. So I'm battling all of this. Yeah. And when he ultimately passed, he was 29. And I said, one, like, how the heck does that happen here in Massachusetts? Right. Um, well, while you're working in the governor's while, office. I mean, actually, it was before then. Okay. But while I'm, you know, at least in the private sector, okay, I'm a right. lawyer. You're a lawyer, yeah. I'm a Princeton alum. I'm a you're Bostonian. doing all those things I just talked about as a tiger mom. Yeah, you're being I have the tiger the sister. Yeah. the opportunity. Um, and I still can't make a difference here in getting him what he needs. Yeah. Um, and when he passed, you know, I had met others who had similar stories and was connected to others who had similar stories of a loved one suffering as a pretrial detainee mm. in the prison systems here in Massachusetts and feeling as though they didn't have the networks I had. Right. You know, they couldn't even visit, right? right? I was at the hospital when Andre went to the hospital. Even when he went back to the prison, it was just bouncing back and forth. I was always able to know where he was, to be in communication. Other families, not so lucky. Uh, um, and we were able to put certain things in place even when it looked like he wasn't going to make it. Yeah. Um, healthcare proxy, wills, all of that because of legal expertise that I had or had access to that other families did not and continue not to have. And so 
it's when I talk about Andre, it's not just his story and what, of course, he meant to me personally. Right. But it speaks to the larger larger issues that families continue to go through when it comes to a high cash bail system, yeah. healthcare issues, pre-trial detainees, how we don't see the humanity in these folks right. who maybe have made a mistake. Right. Um, and we don't treat them accordingly. And, you know, it continues to happen. And so I'm going through this process, and that's when I decided to say, okay, well, what are you going to do with your own life? Yeah. Like, this is the time to be reflective and self-reflective. So I read a lot of my Bible and spent a lot of time in the self-help section of many bookstores, (laughs) um, getting over the anger of it all, and, and then saying, okay, well, Andre would want you to be happy, so what are you meant to do with your own life? And that's when I made the switch to run for office, and I felt like that's what I heard in response to not just prayers, but people saying, have you ever thought about running for office? And I was like, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, And every day it's been confirmed that I made the right choice. Yeah. And what what, what confirms it? Like, what are the things that happened to you during the day? Because I I certainly, like, I I can imagine why people walked up to you and said, hey, should you be? running for office because you um, you give off this vibration of leadership and a true compassion for the city that I think people really um, feel emboldened by and but I'm but I'm curious what you know what reinforces that for you when you are because you're out in the community, out in the community all the time um, I want to look at my story mm-hmm. and you know I talk about the loss of Andre but you know I've lost my biological mom right. my father when I was in college. You know, I talked to him one morning, died the same evening when I was oh. in Princeton. I was a sophomore. And my biological mom, you know, dies in a car accident going to visit my father who was in prison. Right. Didn't meet him until I was eight. So just all of this loss, all of my grandparents are deceased. Um, and I go deeper and deeper in my own story and yeah. those of my relatives. And I would never have imagined that I was meant to go through all those experiences, I guess, to connect with more people. Yeah. Um, to have more empathy and compassion for someone's story. Yeah. Never equating my experience to mean it's the same as theirs. Right. Which I think it's really important. Although we might have grown up poor, doesn't mean that someone who also grew up poor had the same experience. Yeah. But it does pull out of me a sense of empathy and compassion for those individuals who have compelling stories themselves. Right. Um, and so this work allows me to connect with a lot of people, but when I share pieces of my story, it it resonates with more and more people. Um, and when you think about the demographics of my district, most have experienced similar loss and hardship and pain and suffering and trauma. Trauma, Um, but then I get to do something about it. Yeah. And so it's confirmed when a constituent sends me a note or a card saying, I'm so proud of you, you know, um, an elder resident who sees me as like a granddaughter, right? right? Um, they are all they all find their their themselves in, right. in your story and in the work that you're doing. Yeah. So a lot. So I'm I'm interested in the um, you've introduced a plan around education to the city and to the constituents of the city, and you've been spending a lot of time talking about it and about why it's important. And um, I'm wondering if we can talk talk a little a little about talk to me a little bit about your path through the city's education system and maybe even contrast that with your twin brothers because I know it was it was different. different and it was it's kind of indicative I think maybe of why you've landed on some of the things you've landed on in, in your plan and let's talk a little bit about your plan no Start that's with your story. right yeah so um you know I care deeply about education 
because I know it's one of the systems that failed Andre. Yeah. And it's um, a system, though, that can be fixed mm-hmm. and to ensure that every child in the city of Boston can get a quality education from Boston Public Schools. So you, de- you deeply, because I would argue that absolutely every child in the city is not getting. That's right. A, that currently and doesn't you, exist. Yeah. Okay. But you think, you actually think that we can change it. Absolutely. Okay. And, and I know that to be true because... One, I went to five BPS schools. Right. All of them were excellent. Yeah. Some of those schools that I attended are not considered excellent anymore and mm. may at some point not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was a BPS kid, mm-hmm. and he graduated from high school, Boston Tech, in 1951, okay. and always talked about the rigor and the excellence of BPS, Yeah. right? Um, and so what I have discovered, so I know that it's possible. Yeah. And also I have to say, you know, in my own experiences moving in and out of lots and lots of schools, um, the folks who are working in those schools are really like kind, wonderful, smart, amazing, you know, great teachers, that's Great right. mentors, and the, so there's there's a lot of components. That's right. There to, yeah, to work and part with. of it is we need a plan and and maybe to get out of the way a little bit of yeah. those folks on the ground who are yeah. doing the incredible work. Right. Um, but I know it's possible, and and while it may be true now that every student doesn't have access to a quality school and they're going to look elsewhere, and I support every parent who looks anywhere for a great choice for their family. Totally. Who am I to, to take that away from them, particularly when BPS isn't delivering? Right. Um, but at the same time, BPS is the main ship. Right. It's not going anywhere. It should not go anywhere. Um, this is the main vehicle it's to serving ensure, the majority of our students. That's right. right. And the majority of our students of color, those yep. who are poor, who need a solid education the most right. in order to be successful in life. Um, so how so, did you get to Boston Latin? So I went, I started at the Blackstone, okay, which was up the street from where I lived. Yeah. I went from the Blackstone to the Timothy, no, mm. the Blackstone to the Harvard Kent mm-hmm. in Charlestown. Okay. Um, wow. And then Bradley in East Boston. Wait, so were I was commuting you, from this Roxbury. This is later than busing. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I guess I'm a byproduct of busing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the Bradley in East Boston, the Timothy in Roxbury, and then Latin School. Holy smokes. Were you in the advanced working? At some point, I would get yeah. transitioned to AWC advanced work mm-hmm. class. So someone saw something in you and said, That's we're going right. to put you on this track. That's right. Yeah. And Andre didn't get that, right? So yeah. Andre starts off with me at the Blackstone. I think there was some intentionality that they're twins, boy and girl, like separate them so yeah. they can find their own identity. Themselves, yeah. um, and at some point, he gets on a different trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, and... That trajectory included different schools. Mm-hmm. And I didn't notice. I mean, you're growing up. You're like, if anything, bro, get away from me. Right, you're exactly. annoying me. Yeah. Um, but looking back, he wasn't at the schools that I went to. He wasn't in advanced work class. And right. I always joke that Andre actually I thought was smarter than me, mm. um, was much more intelligent mm. um, by a long shot, right? And what happens when you don't um, invest right. and teach right. and give opportunity, Right. right? Um, and that's what he didn't get in some of the schools he went to. And I often make the comparison at the high school level because mm-hmm. I started a Latin school in the seventh grade as a sixty. Mm-hmm. And what you are afforded in terms of opportunities mm-hmm. at Latin school is unbelievable. Yeah. You know, I went to Princeton afterwards, and I often tell folks I never felt inadequate at Princeton. Yeah, because Latin school prepared me extremely well. If yeah. anything, I was like, we don't have more homework. This is it. <laughs> we have more flexibility yeah. you guys to work do this hard homework. over at Boston Latin. I was like, intense. We, I have, wait, 
48 hours versus 24 hours to do this. And so that level of rigor, and not to say it didn't exist at Andre, at one point was at Madison, then he was at the Burke High School, that it didn't exist there in terms of rigor. They just didn't have the resources. They didn't have the programming. They couldn't go into an office and get a job like I did. I Mm -hmm. went to the pick office and got a job downtown. Mm -hmm. um, And that employer is still a friend to this day. Andre didn't have access to all these opportunities and programming. At the time, actually, when he was at the Burke High School, it wasn't even accredited. Right. They were fighting to get their accreditation back. Uh, my family spent a lot of time there doing what we could to support. I remember yeah. being at the Burke quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, but this is, you know, this is everything. So the expectations exactly. of Andre, sudden, you know, somehow somewhere in his past slip. Exactly. You know, as opposed to the expectations that were set for you. That's exactly being right. Being in advanced working classes and, and then in... That's exactly right. And I think, you know, even around how Andre was treated in terms of disciplinary practices, you know, if I talked too much, it was like, okay, young lady, go sit in the back or take a break. Right. It was like, send him to the McKinley School. He needs something more. Yeah. And I'm like, no, my dad's just really hard on us. He probably just needs someone to talk to. Right. And so even that response didn't necessarily exist in terms of what we call social emotional learning supports yes. and, and mental health and all of that that is so critical yeah. wraparound services that we see at some schools but did not exist for him right and those inequities that existed back then still exist today and in some instances maybe have even gotten worse um, and particularly at our high school level uh, when you look at some of the high schools where the concentration of those with the most needs whether yeah. it's special needs students English language learners, um, new arrivals, and yet we have this expectation that the school or the high school that has to receive all these students with limited resources, less resources than some of our exam schools, for example, that they're going to deliver the same results. Yeah. How unfair is that? Well, I mean, why don't you think there's there's a quota on equity? I don't know, quote on equity, I, I don't know, that wouldn't be the language I use. I mean, yeah. I think for me, one thing we pull out in this report is that every high school, for example, yeah. looking at the high school level, should have the responsibility to, be, or at least bear the responsibility to teach all of these students. Right. There shouldn't be this level of concentration or an assignment process that is designed to create this concentration in certain high schools yeah. um, and, 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 and separate um, in many respects, um, and almost set students up to fail. Well, that I mean, that's 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 the thing that I'm really pushing on because, um, it, you know, kind of in reading in reading your um, plan, it feels like we have to start at the very beginning. Yes. Right. Like if we can't start at zero to three because that doesn't fall under the public school system jurisdiction, then the minute kids at four or five are in our school system, how are we evaluating? You know, and insisting that 100% of students are held to the same standards, the same expectations, and given the same set of um, rigorous work. That's right. And so that seems hard. It's, but but it does. But I mean, I'm kind of saying it in one. No, it's it's all hard, hard work. I mean, yeah. it's hard work yeah. to take a system that isn't working and say, okay, we have to now revamp this system so it works for everyone. That yeah. is hard work. Yeah. Um, in the city of Boston, we have several systems, right? All right. So BPS in particular, I mean, I focus on four areas in the plan because we could start with 20, but it says, okay, that's too much at once. Let's start with four. And I engaged so many people over a six-month period to inform this report, teachers, administrators, parents, 
people who are just interested in education, yeah. taxpayers, you name it. And the four areas were not only the high schools, mm-hmm. but also early ed, yep. starting from birth to five, not just to focus on four and five-year-olds, right. because it's so critical and so crucial early to a child's though. development. It's, it's critical. I agree. We probably have to do that in collaboration with the state, though, because it's a lot of state funding. We could. Yeah. I mean, we have to do that in collaboration with everybody, yeah. right? And so one of the things I put forth in the plan, it's not just, okay, let's focus on high schools, early ed, expanding access to quality, right? Um, And then uh, this idea around the central office, right? You know, revamping that and and changing the role they play and saying it's not about you, it's about parents. So you look at these four areas and then I said, okay, we want actionable, specific things that people can wrap their head around to move us, move the system forward. Right. In the early ed piece, one of the things that came out of these all these conversations with experts, frankly, is who owns it? Yeah. Like at the city level, right. and it should be someone in like a cabinet position. Right. And not like chief of education that has to own all of it, but like who just owns this birth to five years old? And whoever owns it is empowered, right? Resourced. Right. Their office is resourced to work in partnership not only with BPS, but also all of the state agencies, federal agencies, and all the incredible institutions that exist right yeah. here in Boston and greater Boston, including our hospitals, our health commission, um, and saying, let's map out in some way yeah. what exists for families from zero to five. Yeah. And not just focus on the child and giving the child, the baby, yeah. um, to the toddler, everything, but what does a parent need yep. to be successful? Yep. Which is a parallel question, right? It's like, what does the baby and the student student need? What does a parent need? Right. And someone who owns this could map out all of the incredible resources. Because what I learned in the process is there are a lot of resources out there for our families, believe it or not, yeah. that people don't even know about. That right. I think we take for granted because of access and networks that we have. Yeah. And, and what we know, right, even just access to certain type of books that you read as becoming a mom and a yeah. new mom. So someone can own that. But more importantly, someone could also be that person that connects with all these institutions to say, how do we expand yeah. where there are the gaps? Right. So, for example, BPS is only delivering partly, you know, pre-K seats for right. three-year-olds and four-year-olds and five-year-olds. My son will be three next summer in August. Yeah. We're already starting the process. I want him to go to BPS. And let yeah. me tell you, the pre-K seats are not only limited in number, yeah. um, the choices are not the greatest. Yeah. And I live in Mattapan. Yeah. And most assignment uh, folks and advocates say, choose at a minimum five and go from there. Right. My list only contained four schools. Right. Um, and you so my husband and I are looking at each other. We're like, okay, we're a little frustrated. And they don't all have the greatest reputation, right? right? And you talk to parents who are like, I tried it, wasn't a good fit, don't think it's great. That's really tough. Um, and so the person who owns this could say, not only do we need to expand this, yeah. there are resources, how do we go after them? It needs to be, could develop a strategy, bring in all of the stakeholders you could possibly imagine to then get it done. And then also, when you have one person sort of owning it, yeah. the public has someone to hold accountable. So sw- switch that over too, because I think I think that is its own, not the zero to three space, because there is this question of who owns mm-hmm. it, right? And really, the money's coming from the state, primarily, and said so there, and I do actually think the new commissioner is doing some really interesting mm-hmm. thinking around there. But move, move, so move that up, that same conversation up to kindergarten through 12th grade. How, how do you... 
How do you think about using your position as city councilor to start to organize and address components of this change? Like what, you know, what, I guess what's your power base and how do you, how do yeah. you wield influence over decisions that are really ruled by the superintendent and school committee? Yep. How, how do you, or the mayor. how do you represent yeah. all the parents who feel the same way you, you know, you do, but don't somehow they haven't, there hasn't been this cacophony of pushback, you know, saying, why do I only have four choices? I, you know, I have five choices, but I can only fill in four of the blanks. Like mm-hmm. how is that acceptable in the city? I agree. I, it, it shouldn't be acceptable. Yeah. And I think, you know, each of us on the council side, I mean, the 13 of us, um, we, we get the emails and the, and the complaints from the parents um, and the concerns, right? So hence, I said, one, what, where I do have some power is to be able to put forward a plan. Yeah. Even if I don't see it coming from the administrative side or BPS, yeah. I'm going to put out my own plan. Yeah. And now it's how do I take this on the road right. to garner support, right? And I, we've been somewhat successful in that funders or people that are investing in BPS mm. are saying, this is a good plan. Yeah. And I'm saying to them in response, thank you. You're investing in our schools. You have such leverage to ask the superintendent, to ask BPS, the mayor, where are you with Andrea's plan? Right, right, right. Or with this plan? Right. Um, and pushing people in that space to do that yeah. because they have probably more power in the system than I do in terms of moving other pieces of the system to respond. Um, I've had my meetings and conversations with all of the various stakeholders. Do, do you think the and funders have more? Because I would, I mean, if I was in either one of their positions, I'd be like, I don't really care. What, mm-hmm. you know, like who are, who, who is a philanthropist to dictate what happens in, in city politics? Like, I, I think. I think about your constituents, right? Like, you know, that, how, them too. Yeah, but do so. Do them you too. find them desiring so to like I go? I think and, everyone plays a role. Yeah. And so for me, the funders and those who and, and the partners—I put that in quotes—who yeah. are partnering currently with BPS yeah. have cr- tremendous power to leverage to say, "Where are you with that plan?" Yeah, yeah. And I want to know. Yeah. And if not, you know what? I, I have concerns, right, right, about where this system is moving. Okay. And they're already organized because I've I had a you know thing at the Boston Foundation yeah, where yeah. it was packed and talked about the plan. That's I'm terrific. I'm getting on the roads with all these folks. They're organized, you can find them. Yeah. The parents, there are various folks who's who are saying they organize parents, their yeah. parent council meetings. It's not as organized as it could be. That yeah. is the challenge for us. Yeah, yeah is I'm going to a lot of the parent site council, uh, parent council, site council groups meetings, yeah, right, yeah. at all the schools. Yeah. Um, some of those are robust groups, some much smaller. Right, yeah. But I'm talking about my plan, and people are like, this is really great. Right. And, of course, hearing their other concerns. Um, I talk to parents in different spaces, but that, you know, how do we mobilize our parents in such a way um, and organize them in mm-hmm. such a way that they are showing up at City Hall Plaza in the thousands to say, I'm done. Right. And that is hard when they're working two or three jobs. Right. They're busy, right? Yeah. Um, but we're thinking critically about how we do that. I think, you know, teachers obviously organized. Um, administrators are somewhat organized too. Yeah. And you can, and obviously smaller in number. Right. So you can find them, and so they are uh, supportive as well. Yeah. And but the parents is the critical piece. And so for me, 
what we're always grappling with is how do we get our plan out in front of more parents? So yeah. I'm going to more folks who are doing that, but it's hard. I mean, you need people to invest in that. Yeah. The city council doesn't have, you know, we don't have budgets to do this work. No, right. You know this, right? You have the power to reject so we the budget to, or accept the, yeah. or approve the budget, right? And like when we don't have discretionary resources to say, I'm going to use all of my discretionary resources yeah. and like hire 20 organizers to go and organize my parents. Yeah. Um, so we're relying on other organizations right. that we go to. Hence the partners. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think it's also getting folks to understand that they can make a difference. I think you get so overwhelmed mm -hmm. by it. You see that list and you just go, you know, you throw your hands up. What can I, my one voice do? Right. Um, and then you just sort of keep, you just accept it, right? Yeah. And I'm saying, but the plan is you don't have to. And here's why. Not only because you know these inequities exist, but yeah. here's our, some concrete things that we could be doing and that you, parent, could assign on, you could sign on to, attach your name to, yeah. um, and show up, you know, at different meetings or hearings to make this happen. So I think we have to be able to tell our parents, not only is it significant that they continue to play a role. Yeah. Um, but we create the space for them. And I'll just add, we, we have seen some organizing of late around transportation. Mm -hmm. so every year, right? That's my four years on the council, the first day of school, you get the parents emailing, my son wasn't picked up, my daughter wasn't picked up, or my kid is lost. Or I was going to say, or not in And right usually place. it's the school in contact with the parents right. saying, parents, call City Hall. Yeah. Right, and then suddenly we get these form emails and calls and 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 legitimate cases, right? right? Saying it's not working. How do we expand that around other issues, right? Um, and encourage it, right? Yeah. Do you because when you're out listening to the community, is this the is this the biggest topic, or is there a different like what are what are kind of the two or three big things that you're having conversations about with they most vary. I mean, members. It, it varies. Yeah. Education, absolutely. Yep. Housing, yep. where people are like, I don't have a place to live. Right. It's not affordable. The city is way too expensive. It's, it's massive. I just heard some someone said that there are 12,000 people on a wait list for housing. And that depends. So it could be on the public housing side. Public housing side, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and our former... Um, commissioner or, or, or head of BHA who's since passed Bill McGonagall, who was amazing, yeah. you know, at one point said, we probably shouldn't even be accepting new applications because we're wasting people's time because yeah. the wait list is so long. So extraordinary. Um, but housing is, is a big one. We see that in our district, um, certain parts of our district where people said, I've lived here for years as a tenant and now this development's coming and I have to leave. Right. Um, major concern. We have uh, public safety issues and particularly my district, people are saying, it's hard to focus on other issues around not just our education or, or you know, air pollution right. or lack of access to a, or a green space or just other things when people are getting shot and killed. Yeah. Um, and, and that is real. I was going to say, that and that's a, a significant part and of your for district. for us, that's too. always going to be at the top of the list. Yeah. It is never a good feeling, and we get the alerts on my team all the time. Yeah. Um, it is never a good feeling to say, oh, you know, there was another shooting or another stabbing in my district. Right. Um, I, I don't focus on the incident. I see all, all of the underlying causes, right. and it is lack of housing, lack of opportunity, lack of a good education. Right. Most of the participants in some of this criminal activity, there's a connection to their the disconnect that they had in BPS. Yep. I visited young people at 
DYS facility in my district, yeah. and majority of those students were saying, oh yeah, I was at BPS. It was an awful experience. Yeah. Um, so all of these go hand in hand. And so for me, I, from my district perspective, say, what are the inequities in this district? Mm-hmm. And it is around education, housing, air pollution, which I tell folks connects to climate change, which you should totally. care about. Right. Um, transportation, lack of transportation in certain areas. Transportation deserts exist in my district, so how can you get to a really good job right. or anywhere else? Right. So all of these issues that we focus on, opportunity generally, um, how do we address those inequities? Do you, That's do you, the hard work. Can and I, do you find that the city works collaboratively on these things? Because I, I agree with you, it's not just the education department that, you know, is going to solve all of these riddles for families and for kids. And so do you see a lot of collaboration happening between the healthcare system and the transportation system and the, um, no, I don't think we do that well. Yeah. And I think, you know, we tend to work in silos Mm -hmm. or issue by issue. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm, People often ask, what are you working on? What are the top three? And I'm thinking, I got 20 yeah, because yeah, my yeah. district has 20. Right. And it's all, it's all intersection. Yeah, but all that's not good for messaging. No. Like, you know, they're like, it's no, you know, I'm like, I'm working on moving people out of public housing and, and building their wealth. I'm doing this. And they're like, okay, what, what are the three? Right. right, right. Um, but I say where we have an opportunity, I think in the city is if you can address all of those inequities that exist in say a Mattapan and Dorchester. Yeah. And you have to do it um, collaboratively, handling all of this all at the same time. You get that right. Every single issue in the city of Boston is solved. It's it's solvable for sure. Yeah, and what I mean by that is that because that's the hard stuff. And I think people want to shy away from it because it is so hard. Like, where do you begin with the violence in a community? Well, those residents will tell you. Right. And they've been experiencing for years go they'll tell you yeah bring them to the table right. bring their solutions right admit we don't know everything right um but we solve all that then that prosperity that certain neighborhoods and certain people feel in our great city is felt by everyone and if we could do it in such a way that people in the more prosperous sections of our city can yeah. play a role yeah. in that yeah how incredible oh i think so i think if there was a way to bring everyone to the table i think people would come for that's sure that's right because i do think people People care. They just don't yes. know how to show up, right. when to show up. Um, how to give, ex- how to help. Ex- and how to help. I think so, too. Yeah. Let me ask you a very specific question about um, Boston Public Schools. Um, Madison Park, you talk a little bit about um, vocational school um, in your plan, and we have Madison Park. And what would what would a thriving Madison Park look like? Oh, Madison Park. So I spent a lot of time there. Um, Keith is wonderful. They're, they're headmaster. And, yeah. um, you know, people have been, before I even got to the council, yeah. advocating for Madison Park to be the great vocational school that we see in other parts of Massachusetts, yeah. right? Um, we know there are other institutions, and I visited them, that are doing great work. And the question is, when is the system, a.k.a. BPS, the administration, going to respond uh, to the recommendations that the folks at Madison Park have. Mm-hmm. So it's not just around the building itself and making sure they have modernized equipment to serve all the trades and various things they want to do. Yeah, It's also about enrollment and assignment. Mm-hmm. 
they have students there that have no idea what a vocational school is. They're That's like, well, so why? Odd. You don't you're apply. Not even, you're here because you're in an open assignment, assignment process. You're right. just assigned. Right. But no idea as to what this school is about. Right. They've been talking about an application process for some time. And for me, it's like, why is it taking so long? Why is it taking so long? Uh, and that's the question I have for everything. I think yeah. my two biggest frustrations with government is just how much time it takes to get something done um, and how much money we waste in yeah. taking and in, in just dragging our feet. Um, so we've had several hearings on Madison Park. And at one point, I think I, I expressed frustration like, I, we don't need another hearing. Yeah. You know, administration, BPS, these are the things on the table from teachers, administrators, the principals, the students, where they think this is a way to improve this institution. So what is your response to those specific things? Um, It's either yes or no. Right, right? exactly. So, And I I still don't understand it. Just no momentum. Um, But I think one of the things, so whether it's Madison and improving Madison Park, which is so key given the jobs that are online now, forget the jobs that are coming online, the jobs now that mm-hmm. require so much in the vocation, vocational space and coding and computers, alt technology. Yeah. But then Madison Park, you have the exam schools that tend to take up a lot of the attention, particularly in the media front. Right. And I'm going, okay, yes, we have to work on diversity issues. And frankly, we want to lump them all together. Yeah. John D. O'Brien and Dr. Wisdom are doing just fine when right. it comes to diversity. Right. I don't even know why they're part of the conversation. Right. Latin Academy doing quite well. It's seeing some differences now. My former classmate is the headmaster over there. Okay. Um, but the real issue is Latin school. I'm right. like, let's stop talking in circles. Right. It's looking at the numbers and having a thoughtful conversation around well, Latin school. Latin school also gets bombarded by all the private schools, right? And, and so it's just... But the amount of tension it takes in the media space, yeah. and it's like, excuse me, so we have Madison right. exam schools right. that you tend to talk right. about the most. But what about all these other open enrollment right. high schools? And whatever our, what are our plans for our other high schools? Yeah. Well, yes. what are our plans for all and of these kids that were that's the, are not graduating or are graduating? I mean, it's an extraordinary amount of kids we, we don't have, graduate every year. Well, the, the positive thing is we have right now the highest graduation rate since... Ever, I think, frankly, I think maybe I'm looking at LA, my chief of staff. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe in the, right now it's the highest. I think we're at like 74 or 75%. Um, we're doing pretty good. It's, it continues to go up. Yeah. So that's a good thing. Right. But what's sad is almost half of those students yeah. are graduating not prepared for employment, certain career opportunities, or to be successful in life, which tells me that certain high schools right. are graduating students that literally do not have the skill set, maybe even the academic expertise they need to be successful. Um, so you see a student graduating from Latin school with a certain pedigree. Yes. You look at other high schools, that's not necessarily the case. That is a major problem. Of course, it connects to standards. Major problem. Major but this problem, is an yeah. opportunity, though, when you're talking about a Madison. Mm-hmm a classical education at Latin school. Mm-hmm. You don't have to take that away. That's it's rooted in their tradition. Great. What could we do that is innovative for all these other high schools? Mm-hmm. You know, East Boston High is by the airport. Yeah. I went to the Bradley. We were always in partnership. We were always designing runways or something yeah, else yeah, yeah. in the fifth grade for the Logan Airport. Right. I think you know they probably owe us money for how much design you work got, we I did know, you in did fifth some grade. Deep thinking over there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I th- I'm like, I think you guys. Well, owe and us I something. and I feel like they're trying to do a partnership with JetBlue, or maybe they have a partnership but with JetBlue. I think, and they have a principal. They have people who are dedicated. Yeah, to totally. Him. Absolutely dedicated parents, students rising up for their high school. But what 
else could be done there that is innovative? Yeah. Maybe we don't call it Vogue Tech, but like, right? You know, what school or high school, and maybe the Burke? You know, what, well, or, or what school is, could be a technology center? Yeah, should we call it Vogue Tech? Because if we're only graduating, like if these open enrollment schools that you're talking about, we, about less than forty percent of kids go on to graduate from college in six years. So. It should be. They should all be Vogue Tech because all of the rest of those kids are going into real life after high school. That's right. And, and you know, the unions are like, we're here, ready. You know, we got good jobs. Right. I don't care what. You always will need a plumber right. and an electrician. That's right. Um, always. And they get paid really well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so are our schools designed in such a way that they are aligned with the curriculum of not only colleges, but of career pathways, yeah. we have a long way to go. Yeah. I mean, I think about my son and shielding him from some of the technology and devices yeah. and all of that. Yeah. But then it's like, okay, get out of the way, parent, because yeah. at the end of the day, his future is technology. Mm. It is coding. So already I'm thinking about, I might need to be enrolling him at three years old yeah. in some program or something that involves technology. And getting out of the space of denial about what his future is going to look like, and that right. there might be flying cars. Right. right. So, like, what? There will be flying. Cars. There will be flying yeah. cars. <laughs> that scares me. Um, but what does that mean? So, I'm sitting back thinking, from my place of frankly privilege, yeah. to say, where could Alexander go? Yeah. That's what we need to be doing at the high school level, but also at starting from kindergarten, right, right, and 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 creating a wide range of choices and opportunities within our schools yeah. for parents to access. They shouldn't have to go somewhere else for the technology program, yeah, because they know what the future holds, and then send their student to BPS for just the the basics. No, do parents know to demand this? I think so. I think yeah. to a certain extent, and. And if they don't, it's then incumbent upon us as leaders, frankly, in mm -hmm. these spaces to raise their expectation as to what they should expect from us. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And when they demand it, to then have them hold us accountable. Right. Um, and I think, you know, that's why I'm not only passionate about education because, one, I think everyone deserves a free public education. Um, but BPS, if it starts to get out of its own way, we start to be more innovative and work in collaboration and not blame one piece of uh, one stakeholder and this stakeholder, it's their fault, right. it's their fault. No, we're all in this together. We're all to blame if the system doesn't work well. But if we get it right, Boston could be the leader um, with respect to every urban school district in the yeah. country in terms of public education that delivers solid education for all of our students around all the things that a parent and a student envisions for themselves for the future. Yeah. That's exciting. City council can has the power to convene, right? You can convene constituents. I mean, I think I think, you know, that's a really interesting point that you're making about bringing all of these groups mm -hmm. together and to embolden families to think about what we actually should be providing for them or could be providing mm -hmm. for them not should be. Um, but I but I do I do I, I, I think it's a smart way to think about it, um, to think about how, how a city council can convene business and healthcare and education, stakeholders in education and, and neighbors who it sounds like have a lot of ideas and we're just not spending time, you know, with folks who yeah. have ideas. Um, so we do that convening. It's, I will tell you, it is, it's hard. It's, it's the things that keep me up at night when yeah. I'm writing, you know, 1 a.m. Yeah. My husband's like, would you go to bed? <laughs> and I'm writing just 
where the limitations are. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a limited staff who yeah. work so hard. Yeah. We see thousands of constituent cases, particularly as a district counselor, that we cannot ignore yeah. from something as simple as we need a permit for a project we're doing, right. a development project. Right. I'm homeless. I got an assignment to a school I want to transfer. Every day there's new cases that come in that we have to address. Yeah. And then couple that with trying to move policy forward that right. will make a difference in lives. Right. And then convening and coordinating yeah. and all of that, it's it's really hard when you job. have a limited human capital. Yeah. Um, and you don't have access to necessarily the resources that you would like or the expertise. So I think this term versus the first, we did better in going outside of the building to yeah. partner with folks and yeah. to pull them in. And people are like, we always want to help. Yeah. I'm like, great. Um, and taking them up on that yeah. um, for their expertise, for their resources, to fill the gaps yeah. um, where we can have a difference or make a difference and a greater impact in our communities. And it's sometimes hard because we have to work with administration, we have to work with departments that don't report directly to us. Right. Um, that's challenging when you think, we have a great idea, and they're like, yeah. that sounds great. <laughs> we have to execute it. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's challenging, but I think we're, we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, so, you say, so you're excited about the next couple of years? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'll just be doing it with... Two, two babies. Two babies. You know, Alexander and the, the son that's on the way. Yes. But, um, I'm sitting here with a very excited. pregnant Andre. I Hamill. know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even get close. It's like the belly's in the way of the table or the table's in the way of the uh, belly. I don't know. Which one? Um, well, yeah, no, we're we're excited and, you know, I we're so blessed yeah. and um, we're, we're lucky uh, to do this work. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us and to talking very thank deeply you. about all of the work that you're doing with the city council and what the future holds. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Thank you for joining my conversation with City Councilor Andrea Campbell. Andrea's district represents nearly half of the students in the city of Boston, and the work that she is doing in education is incredibly important. You can find a link to her education plan in our blog. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.